Thank you, Wilma. Appreciate the gifts that God has placed within your responsibility. Thank you for sharing those with us. As we move further into Habakkuk's prophecy, um, we discover he's grasping something as God has responded to him as we looked last week. Something that is so easily overlooked by us as humans, as people. And you may say, well, what do we overlook? Well, often when we don't see it, we don't know what it is, right? But we have a tendency to see life primarily and maybe even exclusively from our own point of view. We look at things and how it affects us and don't really see the broader picture at times. We see the things around us, how they affect us, how they impact our lives. And because of that, we tend to see sin in light of our experience and our understanding. And remember, Habakkuk is writing to a people who are struggling with some pretty serious issues, and they're facing some pretty serious road ahead of them. And this perspective of ours of looking at sin from our experience, from our understanding, causes us at times uh, to rationalize our sin, to say, well, it's not that bad. Or it's nowhere near as bad as whoever we want to put in the blank. We go easy on ourselves, and we'll go hard on those who offend us. One writer, a guy named A.W. Tozer, uh, thought it was absolutely indispensable to to seek to see things not through our own eyes, but through the eyes of God, to somehow move from our limited point of view, our perspective that we all have, to see the broader view that God has. Now, this is a little bit longer quote than I normally would use, but I think it sets the stage for this passage. Uh, Tozer said this, Until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over conditions around us as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our comfortable way of life. We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon unholiness as the natural and expected thing. That's just the way it is. He goes on, since God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, that is its holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. And when he arises to put down iniquity and save the world from irreparable moral collapse, God is described as being angry. Every wrathful judgment in the history of the world has, an, has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. And Tozer closes with this one-line illustration. He says, he, God hates iniquity as a mother hates polio that would take the life of her child. That's how much God hates sin. And his vision is what he wants us to have. So as Habakkuk, with all of his cultural baggage, his social baggage, his religious baggage, looked around, he he was concerned, he was confused, he was kind of miscombobulated in the moment because he didn't understand what God was doing. He was living in a place, Habakkuk was, where morals were in free fall, where injustice was common and violence was everywhere. Wow. You're thinking, that sounds like Today, doesn't it? But that's the way it was in Habakkuk's day. 
God was going to use a people more unrighteous than his own people just didn't make sense to Habakkuk. He's going to use the Chaldeans to bring justice to his people. And what the prophet was struggling with seeing was seeing things the way God saw them. Because he, like us, struggles with getting outside of our own vision and seeing what God sees. But he begins to get it as we move into the second half, the latter half of verse or chapter 1. And, and what he does here, and let me, I, I spent Monday morning with a headache studying this passage. I'm just going to tell you, it was, it, it, it just some weeks are easy and some weeks are hard. Just like in your job, some weeks are easy and some weeks are hard. This one this week was tough to figure out what in the, what in the world he was saying here. But I think what he's saying is this. He comes back after God, he had a complaint in the first part of chapter 1. God gives him an answer. Here's what I'm going to do. It's something you can't even imagine. It's so different from what you can even think of. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to use the Chaldeans to blow in here and take care of things. And now Habakkuk has to make a decision. How am I going to deal with it? How am I going to deal with this news? He has a second request or confession, if you will. I think he has three confessions here, and that's the way I've written this. So three confessions and then a couple of thoughts to apply it to our lives. The first confession is found in verse 12 where we read these words. Are you not from everlasting, O God, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. I think his first confession is this. God, your vision is clearer than ours. You ever say things and somebody looks at you and goes, well, duh, that's a duh. But we need to be reminded of that, don't we? That God's vision is clearer than ours. God sees better than I do. He sees the picture way better than I do. He understands everything more. So the first thought here is this. You, God, are eternal. You are God. You are Holy One. The prophet looks up to realize God's view of things is really different from his. I would use the word radically different from his. As part of the people of God, he views his life from, just like you and me, from a selfish perspective. How does this infect me? Affect, infect, affect, affect me? How does this impact me? How does this intersect with my life? The prophet goes, wait, you're God. He, like so many of us, thought he was the basis of the understanding for the whole world. And he's beginning to discover he's not. Look at verse 12 again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? The light begins to come on in his mind as he confesses the unique character of God. The character of God is what? Eternal. He is God. That, that's a descriptor, a descriptor of God as well as a name for him. He is the one who is in control. He is holy. These are not the typical reality for the average person in life, are they? We're not eternal. Not in the sense that God is. We're not God. Boy, that's a thought we need to guess. And, and we certainly aren't what? Holy. But he says, that's who you are, God. And instead of living in a way he believed God was like him, he is beginning to grasp that there is a difference between him and God. He understands that God has a vision. And until he understands God's perspective on life, he says, I can't can't really get it, but I'm starting to. So he says, you're eternal, God, holy one. But you also do something special. Look at the second part of chapter 12. We shall not die. 
you're going, well, not much there. Hang on. What he's saying is, God, you're going to preserve your faithful ones. You're going to preserve your faithful ones. He realizes even with the coming destruction, God's already promised destruction, excuse me, it's coming. But the reality is, even with that, not everyone's going to die. Not everyone's going to go away. Yeah, they're going to face a serious attack. Yes, there are going to be people who lose their lives. Yes, the temple's going to be destroyed. Yes, the city of Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Yes, it's going to be a painful season for the people. Yes, it's not going to be fun. Not going to be something that anybody wants to go through, but it's coming. And it's going to be destructive, but not everyone's going to die. He realizes that not all the people of the nation are going to be destroyed, even though the coming storm is going to be wild. God's going to preserve a faithful remnant. God's going to keep some to carry on his legacy. He's not going to let it all go away. God would preserve a remnant for when the storm passes. And he's going to preserve his faithful ones. Let me remind you of three characters you're probably very familiar with, but maybe don't, haven't ever really put them in the right spot in your historical outline of the Bible. You, you've heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That wasn't really their names. That was their pagan names, but it's who they were. Do you know they lived in the period of time right after Habakkuk's prophecies? And they lived in a pagan land. They lived under a pagan king. They lived through the hardship. But they were what? Faithful to God. God was going to preserve his faithful ones through this because he is going to accomplish his work through his people. So your eternal God, your eternal God and Holy One, you preserve your Holy Ones, but you've also chosen your correction. The theme keeps coming back because it's in here. He talks about correction again and again. Look, look at the verse 12 again. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. A third aspect of grasping the truth of God's vision is clearer than ours is found in understanding that God gets to choose his path of direction. You go, well, well I don't like his direction. I don't like his correction. I don't like what he's doing. Guess what? You're not God. I'm not God. He's God. He's holy. He's eternal. He's going to preserve some, but he's going to do what he's going to do to bring about what's best for his people. Well, it seemed unfathomable to Habakkuk that God would use such a filthy, immoral people like the Chaldeans to accomplish, well, honestly, anything. God has chosen to use them. Habakkuk doesn't understand why. Can I tell you something? I'm not sure I understand why. God uses those kind of people to accomplish his purposes, but he does. I can't even imagine the prophet liking one bit of his tool. But he did believe and accept that God had chose the tool, and if God had chose the tool, then it must be the what? The right one. See, he didn't have to like God's plan for God's plan to be right. Sometimes from our perspective, we say, but God, I don't approve of your plan. And? Who do we think we are? God works in ways we cannot see. He works in ways we don't understand. He works in ways that are way broader and bigger and more divine than we can ever begin to understand. And while Habakkuk didn't understand or agree with the plan, it still was the right plan for God. So his first confession, God, your vision is clearer than mine. His second confession... God, your goodness 
It's greater than ours or greater than mine. Look at verse 13 to following. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, the enemy, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Now you're going, you see why I had a headache Monday. I'm thinking, look at that going, hmm. What in the world, Habakkuk, are you trying to tell us? I think ultimately his thought is, God, your goodness is greater than mine. You're, you're way better than I can ever begin to be. And yet in the midst of all of this, you allow wicked to impose their will. How were the wicked able to do what they did? Because God allowed it. Well, that'll make you, as one of my professors in seminary said, scratch your theological noggin. God allows wickedness for a purpose. Ooh, that'll challenge your theological worldview, won't it? And yet God works in ways we cannot understand. God allows the wicked to impose their will. Remember, the nation of Judah was facing an ever-shifting political situation. The the, uh, ascendant Chaldean-led Babylon was coming for them. They had a reputation of being fierce warriors who basically operated what we might call in, in 21st century, or excuse me, 20th century warfare, a scorched earth policy. They would come in and just destroy everything. Start over. They carried out their style of attacks. They were wicked. They were awful. They were destructive. They were terrible. And you're going, God, you're going to use them? Really? Many people would die. Others would be going into captivity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, great example. Cities would be destroyed, decimated. There would be a sense of hopelessness. It was all going to be bad. But God was at work. Oh, and this was his plan? It seemed to the prophet the wicked were allowed to impose their will on the world while the righteous suffered mightily. It seemed like no good deed went unpunished, as an old friend of mine once said. And it seemed as if wickedness was released along the world, across the world and was actually going to win. That didn't make sense. God, where are you? But that's exactly what God was doing in his day. He was taking utterly pagan people and using them as his tool to bring about a greater good. You go, oh, I'm starting to get a headache now. Because that doesn't fit what many of us have grown up hearing, that God is always good and always works good and he won't work with, he won't, he only work a certain way. Let me tell you, God works however God wants to work. He moves however he wants to move. And if he wants to allow the wicked to impose their will, to rule for a season, to accomplish something greater that you and I cannot understand, that's his purview. He's God. So he allows the wicked to impose their will. He also appears to leave us like rulerless fish. You're going, what? We could have said insects here too because he refers both crawling things. He said, you made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. You're going, I don't know if I like that comparison between me and a fish and bugs. 
But catch what he's trying to say. Strange phrase, but he's simply sharing a belief that it seems like God has left his people like a school of fish in the ocean just going. Who leads a school of fish, do you know? Now, there's somebody, somebody here who says, well, now, Patrick, biologically, there is a this and this and this. I understand. But from our perspective, we look at a school of fish, and what do we see? Just a mass movement. Nobody's in charge. You see bugs on the ground. You don't think, well, who's in charge? They just seem to be running all over the place. We understand ants have a queen and all that kind of stuff. But from perspective, they look like they're just kind of all over the place. And when you stop to think about what's going on with the leaders of the land of Judah, it kind of makes sense because what he's talking about is our nation is really a mess. Our people are a mess. God, you seem to be missing from our perspective. If you remember, King Josiah had implemented great reforms not too long before Habakkuk, and he had called the people to return to God, and the nation had come back to the Lord. They reinstituted worship the way it's supposed to be. They read the law again for the first time in in, in decades, and God brought a sense of conviction on the people, and they changed, and then he died, and they started going right back to the same ways. And they had weak kings. They weren't just weak. They didn't have hearts for the Lord. God, it seems like you've left us like rulerless fish. Nobody's in charge. There are a bunch of bugs on the ground running around like crazy animals, insects. And instead of being inspired to be faithful, they felt like they're going nowhere. So he says, you allow them to, 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 to rule. You, you, you seem to leave us like, like leaderless, rulerless fish. But you also bring your correction for our good. Look at verse 15. He, the wicked foe, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his drag net, and he rejoices in his glad. What he's doing is completing the work that God has released him to do. You're going, that doesn't sound like fun to be drug up with a net or with brought up with a hook or gathered in a drag net. And he's over there rejoicing. But what he's talking about is God is doing his work. He's going to accomplish something through this season. The wicked can be used, will be used by God to bring correction. Remember last week we saw there was no way God's people could ever fathom such an outcome. But that is in fact exactly how God's working. They're going to face some serious trials. Why? Because God's working for his greater good. Now we have the perspective of able to look back after the cross and understand what God was doing in his people back then. He was bringing about a perfection, a a cleansing in them that got them ready and bringing the world into a situation where there's a common language around the world so that the gospel, once it hit the ground, could just go boom everywhere. They didn't understand that. In fact, they didn't live long enough to even grasp that. But God, from his perspective, says, I'm bringing correction for our good to bring something better. So, Confession one is vision is clearer than ours. Confession two, God, your goodness is greater than ours. Third confession is, God, your desire for us is to follow you alone. And this is where the struggle centered for these people. Look at verse 16 through verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is Rich, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? 
I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. What's going on? By this point in my sermon preparation, I was ready for another couple of pain pills, to be honest with you. I'm going, God, what are you, what? look what happens in this text. What are the wicked doing? Therefore, he what? Sacrifices. Now, you're going, ancient world worshipped differently than we do. They would have an altar, and they would bring and sacrifice something because they felt like you had to give something in the service to the God, the little g, God. And what they would do, and we're talking about the Chaldeans, is they would worship what he describes as their nets. And you're going, okay, he just talked about schools of fish. He just talked about wild insects. And the net is an image for the God they worshipped. The prophet confesses his confusion. Why God would tolerate people who worship their weapon of war. That's what they were doing. The very people God had said was going to, he was going to use to bring judgment were pagans. They worshipped their nets. That was a way of saying they worshipped their warfare. They worshipped their ability to, uh, to bring out uh, and, and destroy. And instead of following God, they celebrated their weaponry. They celebrated their skills. They celebrated the tools they had developed so they could kill people. They would offer sacrifices, according to historians, to their weapons because they would then get power in their weapon. You're going, that's weird. Yeah, it is. From the prophet perspective, it made no sense. God, why are you going to take them and use them? But that's what God is going to do. Habakkuk could see their wickedness limiting them and bringing God's judgment. But to use them, to allow them to win doesn't make sense. They wick, the wicked worship their nets. But catch this, Judah also had a problem. And remember, he's writing to the people of Judah, the nation called Judah, uh, Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes. Judah worshiped comfort and security. Wait, 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 I thought they worshiped God. They do what so many of us do. They allow other things to take the place of God. The people of God were guilty of idolatry. No, they didn't worship nets, but they worshiped other things. In contrast to the wickedness of the Chaldeans, the people seemed to be okay. It's always interesting. We love to compare ourselves, what, to the worst person we can think of, not the best person we can think of. So what the nation of Judah is going, hey, we're way better than the Chaldeans. We don't worship nets. We don't worship war. We don't worship death. We worship what? And this is where Habakkuk says, you're not worshiping God anymore. You're worshiping comfort. You're worshiping security. And while they had allowed pagan idols to be set up in the temple from time to time, I think their biggest idol, and I think honestly as we get to application in a minute, is one that we struggle with as well, isn't it? Is the idea of comfort, security, safety. They'd come into the promised land. They'd cleared out the pagans, or at least most of them, and now they just wanted to sit back and relax and enjoy security. It's not possible. And they'd allowed other gods to take them. And then we turn into chapter 2. You're going, why is he picking up one verse from the next chapter? Remember, chapter and verse, verses, verse numbers weren't added until 
about a thousand years after Christ. So sometimes they don't exactly fit where the logical thought breaks. But verse 1, he, he come back, comes back and says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. What the prophet is saying is this, I'm going to find a high place. In the ancient world, high places were associated with worship. I'm going to find me a high place where I can take in, God, what you're doing. And I want to see how you're going to answer. I want to see what you're going to accomplish. I'm going to see where you go. Because he understands that anything that takes the place of God becomes an idol. And these things could be nets. They could be safety. They could be security. It could be a thought, a belief. God is not willing to share his affection. He says, no, I want to see what you're going to do. I want to worship you because you're going to move. I want to worship you for you're going to move. So what do we do with this? Three quick thoughts and I'll be done. First, we need to grasp this truth. God's ways are vastly different than ours. You know, there's a a lot of folks who like to think of God as their buddy, as the man upstairs, as a, a friend, and he is. But he doesn't operate like we do. In reality, he is vastly different from you and me. He is eternal. We are finite. He is good. Well, us, not so much. He is wise. We are not wise. He's all-knowing. We don't know a whole lot. He knows the big picture. We can barely lift our eyes to see anybody else's perspective. His ways are not like ours. And obviously his thoughts are not like ours. So as we're considering how God dealt with his wayward people, we, just like the people in the prophet's day, struggle to understand what he's doing. We're going, what in the world are you doing here? He's going to take an utterly pagan people, bring judgment on his people. That doesn't make any sense at all. Is it possible, my friends, that God is allowing judgment to fall on his people today in the form of a filthy pagan culture? Are we facing a time where the things of God have just pushed to the side? I'm reminded of the words of another prophet, Isaiah. We've already read it once this morning. We prayed it. For your, John says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can I tell you something? I find real comfort in knowing that God doesn't think like me, that God doesn't operate like me, that God is, God is not motivated like I am. And that he doesn't love like I do. That he's so much bigger and better. You know, in my strength, your strength, we can do some good. But if we can find God's holiness, we can make a real impact. Second thought I want you to see. God's holiness is supremely higher than ours. Let's face it, we all think we're pretty good. I'm convinced that there's very few people who don't do what they do because they think it's bad. Most of us do what we do because we think it's what? Good. It's a right thing. It's a good thing. We view our actions for the most part. Those are good things. And when we do step across the line, 
and we sense a lack of holiness, what we'll do is not pivot to compare ourselves to God. We will pivot to compare ourselves to someone worse than us and say, well, I'm not as bad as whoever in an attempt to make ourselves look better. But God's holiness is so far surpassing what we have is actually embarrassing because there's not much goodness in it. The writer of Leviticus reminded the people of God's holiness when he said this, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from, my, from the peoples that you would be mine. God calls his people. You're going, well, that's Old Testament. Uh, yeah, God calls his people. That's us in the New Testament, to be living a greater life, to miss, not miss out on the, the good things he has for us. And, you know, in our strength, we can do a lot of good, but we don't do the greatest good on our own. One more thought. God's desire is for us to worship him. I love at the end of the passage we read is that Habakkuk says, I'm going to go up to a high place, a tower, and I'm going to, Watch for God. I'm going to look for God. I'm going to have an anticipation for God. My, my friends, that's a great definition of worship. And we come together and when we get to alone before God in private worship, that we come with an expectation that he's going to do something. He can accomplish something. You see, it's easy for you and me and it's common for you and me to turn our affection away from God. We all struggle with it. Chaldeans, they worship their military might. Judeans, they worship their comfort security. For us... We have a thousand things that drag us away. We fall for the idol of convenience. We fall for the idol of easy living. We fall for the idol of financial stability. We fall for the idol of lack of pain. I don't want to hurt anything. Somewhere we have to make a decision, just like the psalmist did, that says this, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord the heavens. I think what Habakkuk's starting to grasp is that the people are going to face judgment, but God is going to get the praise. And while we may face hardship and destruction and exile, if God is God does, then we can faithfully follow him through. You know, a message like this is is, is not easy. But it's also one that speaks to us about our perspective. And I want to ask you, what's your perspective on life? Have you lifted your eyes up to see where God's at work, what God's doing? Have you found that pathway where you're walking with him? I don't know what God's speaking to you about this morning from this unusual little text, but I want to invite you. If you need to respond to God, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your blessings. And God, we think of this unusual little text and how Habakkuk's starting to get it. God, you're God and I'm not. You're in charge and I'm not. Your vision's better than mine. Father, I pray that if anything, we would pick up in our lives some of that 
And that, Father, we would begin to see the world as you see the world. Because as we see the world as you do, God, it changes how we treat one another. It changes how we react to things in life. It changes how we make decisions with our time, our talents, and our efforts. Father, I pray for those who need to make some type of response public today. We pray that you'd give them that strength to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.